Coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. Welcome to Mysterious World with your host, Stuart Palm. Join us as we connect across time and space, exploring the mysteries of our world and your world. Welcome back to Mysterious World, and if this is your first episode, welcome to Mysterious World. I am Stuart Palm, and I have a real treat for you all today. Uh, I have an interview with the illustrious Bob Cassidy. Uh, Bob Cassidy is an American mentalist. He is an entertainer and one of the founding members of the Psychic Entertainers Association. That's right. Psychic entertainers have their own association. He's won numerous awards. He's been on television um, numerous times. You could uh, look at his uh, YouTube page and, and watch him perform. He's, he's a really wonderful performer. And in the field, he's one of the guys that people study with. In fact, I have been over the last uh, six months um, working a sort of mint mentoree, minty, I guess, minty situation with Bob Cassidy. He is one of my mentors. Uh, smart guy, always has great things to say, always has interesting stories to tell, which you are about to find out. Um, I originally met Bob in, in New York City when he performed at uh, Monday Night Magic, although uh, I've been reading his material. Uh, he's written numerous books for uh, for years and studying his um ways of thinking in terms of performing mind reading to audiences. He is known as the master mind reader, but today he is uh, joining us to talk about his knowledge on psi and um, psychic phenomena. Uh, psi is the modern word used to explain what well, used to be ESP, and he gets into that kind of definition. He's a, a, he's a well of knowledge. He knows all the stories that uh, that I, I want to hear. He knows all the stuff that I'm looking for, and, and uh, it's a real treat. I should just get right into this, so I'm not going to babble about any longer. I'm just going to go right into this interview. Enjoy my interview with the amazing master mind reader, Bob Cassidy. You know what? I have a I have a really good uh, uh, topic, topical topic uh, that that is not directly about psi, but it's about belief. Um, yep. And it, uh, it it's grown from frustration of some people who are posting about Paris. And it is our friends in the world of uh, atheism and skepticism that that I'm talking about. I got so pissed off at that the other day. Me yes. too. 
and, I, and I answered some things on the Huffington Post. People were just saying offering. All you had to do was say offering prayers. Well, the people of Paris hear my prayers, and there they come out of the woodwork. What good is that going to do? Exactly. You know, there is no God. You talk, what are we talking to Sky Daddy for? You know, I just came on with the evangelical atheist. You're just as annoying and as obnoxious as your fundamentalist brethren. Exactly. That's that's kind of where I went with it as well. Um, there was a, a guy out of New York who was posting a um, a comment basically saying the same thing. Like, uh, I know this is... I, I feel like I'm being kind of a dick by saying that uh, prayer... By, by using this moment to comment on prayer but if not now then when it's like well yeah really not now man yeah well you're right not a time place. you are you are you are a dick and that's exactly what i said i said you are correct <laughs> in what you said you're a, you're being a dick you're a dick that's, that's that was my comment that's right <laughs> i mean what are they gonna do they could gonna call the bullet they'll insult the pope too he offered a prayer the other day my god yeah right well that he would be enemy yeah. number one for their for that camp um, but what's interesting to me about it is that they, uh, only associate prayer with religion. They only associate prayer with it being to a God or generally not even a God, a Christian, the Christian or, or the monotheistic God. They don't I know. allow for the possibility that you're making prayer to your fellow man, like, as in, I'm taking a moment to reflect on people other than myself. It's a selfless act, and it's a moment of selflessness. And I don't think they allow for that interpretation of the idea of It's a of feeling prayer. of it being, uh, you know, who was it? Joseph Campbell that kind of redefined the word atonement, yeah. reading it instead as at-one-ment. But sometimes when you hold the people in your thoughts like this, it is a form of at-one-ment. Yeah. We are with you, and we're reflecting upon that. But, you know, when it comes to spirituality, I mean, I was raised a Roman Catholic, but I quickly became a deist yeah. after I read Thomas Paine's Age of Reason. And I never had any problem with that kind of a God. No. Just an acknowledgement that there's a power greater than I am. I don't know if it's an intelligent power, if it's a sentient power. I don't know what it is, but I know it's certainly greater than I am. You know, you, you'll see a lot of that in... Um, a group like the Freemasons, for example. I was about to say, that, to... that is the um, requirement to become a Freemason. You don't have to be uh, a Christian. You don't have to be no. uh, of any affiliation of any church. No. You just have to state that you believe in a power higher than yourself. And they just happen to call it God, but they also refer to him as the grand architect exactly. of the universe, which is, de which is deist language. Mm -hmm. That's also what you'll see in the Declaration of Independence. You see reference to nature's God. Exactly. Which you'll is see a... reference to divi divine providence. Those are the terms you'll see our founding fathers using. Yeah. Well, intelligent people who are, are even religious or non-religious understand that the concepts and stories of God are metaphors and parables. I wish that we could... Uh, I, I wish that the skeptics out there would just accept that. That it's not. Yeah, you, know, you don't have to. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, they seem to lump together all people as followers of the so-called uh, religions of the book, which, as far as you could get from from deism, for example, where the Bible was just viewed as um, 
of secondhand revelation. <laughs> Thomas Paine called it hearsay. Right. Now, well, it's revel it was a revelation to whoever wrote it, but when you tell it to me, that becomes hearsay. The deist point of view was to to know God and see His revelation. Just go outside and look at the sky at night. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I had there a one wonderful uh, moment last weekend. I we went to this uh, this crazy um, experiential entertainment thing that was. Uh, I don't know if you heard of these kinds of things, but it's called um, a Secret Theater Project. And so what they do is they take a movie and they create it as a play, but it's an experiential okay. play. So uh, the experience that we had, we got on a boat. And uh, everybody was in masquerade masks on this boat. Uh -huh. And the boat went off. And in the middle of the boat ride, uh, certain people started to become actors in a, in a storyline that followed through the okay. night as sort of a murder mystery story. It was really fun. Um, but the thing that, that was the, <laughs> the most uh, beautiful moment for me was that we were out by the islands away enough from the city that I could see stars. And I realized it had been a few years before I had really seen, uh, since I'd really seen a sky full of stars. And it, I wasn't even seeing all the stars, but I could see like Scorpio and Orion and the Big Dipper well, sure. and a couple of things. That's the best place to observe it. Totally. Well, that's why I loved so much when I was on the ships, both in the Navy and on the cruise ships. I'd love to go out on the deck at night, particularly on the Navy ships, because we'd... Uh, sail dark at night with no lights so when you went out like in the mediterranean and you go out on on deck it was just like amazing you could see you know every star in the sky as well as um the milky way well you could see you could see that but you could also just look down at the water and see all the phosphorescent oh i love that fish and things below the surface because the mediterranean is really, really magical I you agree. see all that below you it's like you're floating on stars and there are stars above you and actually, she see shooting stars all the time there. It's usually yeah. if you live in a city, you rarely see those. Right. But they're there all the time. It's just that they're too faint given the other lights. But that is really a, a spiritual feeling you get. You go, my God, there you are in the middle of the ocean. And it stays with you. Just, I, I had that experience on an island in Greece when I when uh -huh. I was. Uh, That's where we were, just off Crete. When I did it, when I last time I remember, nice. we were just off Crete. And what happened is I, I was on a, a village that was on top of a mountain on this island, mm -hmm. and uh, the village still was traditional back thousands of years. I mean, they, they were a Byzantine village, basically, still. And um, uh -huh. the power went out, and so the whole basically the whole island's power went out. And oh I'd, I'd never seen so much star. Like, there was no light pollution. It was amazing. And then you just it, think it how much more about the universe our ancestors had to go on with that experience every night if that's what you were always seeing it makes makes a lot of the old stories and old beliefs make a lot more sense well sure because they all saw that on a regular basis before we discovered electricity sure and lit everything up i think that's the problem what is that what, the squeaking noise no oh sorry What's what squeaking noise? I don't know. I heard something that sounded like a door closing. Oh, you heard that? Yeah, so I'm saying, man, these microphones pick up I all kinds of crazy stuff. I did move a door, and I didn't, I didn't hear it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm standing by the door. 
and I saw an airplane approaching, so I closed uh, it. Like yeah. I'm gonna do now. See if you there's, hear. There's there's the airplane. Hear I heard time? I heard a bit of it, and then the door. I get the and then it went away from the door. That's all right. Yes, because yeah. Well, you tell our listeners I'm standing by a doorway. I don't. Well, basically, we looking, uh, yeah looking at the stars, but there are none to see. Oh, is it night? Is night already dark enough to have stars? Sure, it's uh, seven o'clock at night. Sun goes down right, at five. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm in Seattle. For those who are wondering, and Stuart, of course, is in Hong Kong. So Stuart's in tomorrow. I am. I'm talking to the man from tomorrow. I am in the future. And you were talking to the past. Exactly. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I think that's where mystery comes from. It's just fascination with the world. I think it's a good place to be in fascination with the world. Oh, well, where else could you be? I don't know, man. I think that modern, the modern, um, man is very self-absorbed so much so that he doesn't even see himself as part of everything else. And that's, well, that's true. Trouble. That is true. It's because we're separate from the earth. I was just reflecting the other day on being a tree. Oh yeah. And the reason, Reason I'd read an, an anecdote somewhere on the internet about this little kid, who's you know I think it was a celebrity's kid. The mother asked, "What would you like to be when you grow up?" And the kid says, "I, I want to be a tree." And she thought about that. <laughs> this, when trees what? don't fight with each other. They don't hurt anybody. They don't make wars. Yeah, and they're connected. Except in Tolkien, I think the tre- trees walk around in Tolkien. Yeah, and in the do. Wizard of Oz, I think they they do things. They but throw the other apples. Than that, they throw apples at you. But yeah, but a tree is connected. It's a, and we have an illusion. I think people have the illusion of being disconnected. Yep. Even though obviously that's only illusion. We breathe the same air. Of course. Uh, which is a connection. Well, I read we... somewhere once. In every breath you take will be at least one molecule that was originally breathed by Julius Caesar. Wow. And I thought about that. It's well, if there's at least one molecule that was breathed by Caesar, well, I guess that would include everybody else too. And then I got really upset thinking that I'd just breathed in a lung full of air that had a molecule from Justin Bieber in it. <laughs> Probably more than one. <laughs> yeah, so that that, that made me uh, gas bag that he is. Yeah, there's probably several in there. So it's kind of frightening, you know. If it was just Julius, I guess that would be all right. But totally. I don't know if that's true or not. If there's any element of truth to that, it's one of those things. It sounds like if it's not true, it should be true. Yeah, I mean it. It's a wonderful thing to ponder on. I don't care if it's true or not. No, but it does show the idea of connectedness again, which is a very Buddhist idea, really. This whole at one minute idea. I like it. Uh, I was just watching a film uh, last week that I think you would enjoy if you haven't seen it, called The Experimenter. Have you heard of this film? I think I've heard the title, but I'm not familiar with it. Uh, it's the story of, and now I've forgotten his name, uh, the guy who did the experiments on... Um, following orders and giving electric oh, shocks yes, to people. Yes. Yeah, and there was big questions about ethics involved there because students were going ahead and giving people shocks. Right. 
when they thought they wouldn't do it. Milgram, the Milgram experiments. Yeah, Stanley Milgram. Yep. Um, so the experimenter was about the Milgram experiments, Stanley Milgram. And what I didn't know that showed in the film is that he also did a study that uh, coined the concept of six degrees of separation between all people. That was popularized yes, with that, that with that play. That, in that I've movie. heard of. Yeah, I know that goes way back before um, Kevin Bacon, obviously. <laughs> exactly. Well, that right. That's where I would have learned of it as a kid. Uh, Actually, six I heard of it Kevin went back Bacon. to some math. I heard it went back to some mathematician that it was really called six degrees from, and I forget his name, some famous mathematician, and later, you know, it was just adapted to Kevin Bacon. But that makes sense. Six degrees of separation. It makes total sense. Considering how many people people know, they showed him sending these. They had a target person in a location, and they would send letters out to people randomly, and exactly to see yeah. how 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 long it took for that to get for the letter to get passed to a person who knew the person that they were targeting, and they yeah. found that in, in generally it took about six people, six steps. Yeah, for the people who responded, I, I remember reading about it. A lot of people never bothered to do anything with the letters, but they finally got a result out of it. Right. That's what skews up an experiment like that. People that just don't cooperate, or letters that get misdelivered. And, but just thinking about it, it makes total sense. Mathematically, it makes sense. Yeah. For example, last time I was performing at the Magic Castle, mm -hmm. that's the first time I met Gary Busey, the actor. Okay? Nice. That makes me two degrees from everybody he's ever met personally. Right. Which probably includes just about every actor in Hollywood. Right. And I'd be only three degrees from everybody who they knew. Which would include practically every president going all the way back to, you know, as long as they're alive. I wonder I, how far back in history you can go. Oh, for forever, probably. I, I would say the more and more people as you go back, it would seem. Wouldn't you think? Yeah, I, I remember once reading... Um, exactly. You'd have to go back to the beginning somehow. Um, because that's that's how... And we have a plane going again. Uh, <laughs> because it doesn't take far to get to every person on Earth. Right, because we are because we are here, we have to have, be able to go back to everybody who ever was. And then when you um, get the older people, and you know everybody who they knew who's now dead. And then again with them, and again with them. So, yeah. Well, that just makes sense, really, to think about it. It's like awe-inspiring, awe but it seems logical. I don't know. You've been interested in parapsychology for quite a long time, haven't you? Uh, I got ever, into it. ever since Ghostbusters, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah, right there. You learn how to cheat with ESP cards and what the value of them are. Right. Yeah, mark the ESP cards and impress the women. Yeah, I don't even think he marked them. He's just looking at them. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think he was. Just <laughs> he was. Oh, no, that's right. No, he didn't show them to him. He would hold up. He'd be looking He'd at them. He'd hold them up and look at it and lie. It was, and she, it was a wavy line. She'd say, sorry. He goes, that's correct. It was a hilarious <laughs> moment. And that, that came out when I was a kid, and I just thought it was great. Uh, and that probably is where I first encountered the idea of parapsychology. Well, I, I kind of got into it when I started learning mentalism. Sure. As a teenager. And it just seemed logical to me that if I was going to be doing... You know, I was inspired by 
old-time performers like Dunninger, you know, the mastermind reader, who was in the 1940s. A lot of people today have never heard of him, but in the 1940s, he was the most popular show on radio. It's interesting how on- his his um, legacy is only carried on and remembered through other mentalists and entertainers, and and that there's not that- he doesn't he's been wiped off the memory of culture otherwise. Very old people remember him, right? Very old people will re- remember him. Like my mother remembers him, for example. She's in her nineties, though. Yeah. He did appear on television until the early 1960s. But after that, no. And then it wasn't until the 70s that Kreskin came on the scene, who most people have heard of today, basically doing Dunninger's act. Yeah. So people have seen Dunninger's act, but they just have, if they've seen Kreskin, they've essentially seen what Dunninger did. Right. Dunninger, of course, hated Kreskin for it. I'm sure. For essentially doing his show. But when I started studying, in, in the, I'd say I was in junior high school, maybe, about 14 years old. When I, when I started learning mentalism, I said, you know, you really should learn something about the background of all of this stuff. Right. The scientific side of it. And that's when I went back and started reading all the old books by uh, Dr. Joseph Ryan his daughter, and his daughter, Louisa. And then I got, I got into reading the old journals of the... Um, Society for Psychical Research and the American Society for Psychical Research, who around the turn of the century, the turn of not this century, the last one, the 19th and 20th, were, were studying um, spirit mediums and, and testing them. And it was Dr. Ryan got the idea that perhaps this whole focus on spiritualism was was incorrect. Because what, what, what could be going on was, in fact, telepathy. Right. If a medium revealing something to you that apparently your deceased relative is telling you, he could just as easily be picking up the thoughts from you. And there is really no way of distinguishing that. Hmm. That's interesting. How would you know the difference? There is no way to know. There's some. There's a lot of things in the world where there's no way to say one way or the other what's going on. I don't know how. How did he plan to? test his hypothesis well he just started doing the telepathy tests that were based on on random things like the esp cards for example he started with playing cards too right testing people to see if they could pick up the color and whatever but right away in the beginning there was the problem of that lasted a long time he divided esp what he called it then they don't call it esp anymore it's referred to as psi psi right but he um broke it up into categories which you know telepathy being mind-to-mind communication clairvoyance or clear vision that you knowing something is taking place but without picking it up from someone else's mind mm-hmm. in other words you know what's happening in another room or something and, uh, and there's nobody there or, or whatever you know what or you know what's in a room um precognition the ability to foresee an event um, telekinesis, which originally called psychokinesis, the ability to affect objects at a distance. Right. But the problem was, with the exception of telekinesis, it's almost impossible to distinguish precognition, telepathy, and clairvoyance to determine which one is at work. 
They found, for example, in a run of ESP cards. So I'm testing you. There were, there were cases where somebody got all of them wrong, right? Until they looked carefully at the sequence. And it turned out he was calling each design one card ahead of where it was actually produced. In other words, he would say cross. The design was a, was a circle. Mm-hmm. Right. Then he would say circle. The design was a star. Then he would say star. In other words, he was getting them one ahead. Right. Which Ryan thought that could indicate precognition. Seeing what card is next. But it could also indicate clairvoyance. <laughs> Just knowing what the next card on the deck is. Right. So what is being shown? Likewise, it's almost impossible to distinguish between telepathy and clairvoyance. Nowadays, the closest thing that's actively being studied to clairvoyance would be remote viewing, where somebody's able to tell something that's happening at a distance. But how do you know you're just picking that up through some clairvoyant ability, the ability to see at a distance, or whether you're picking up the thoughts of the judge that selected it, that's why you have to have random selections, or the thoughts of somebody who's present on the scene. You don't know. Yeah. And that's why the that's why the umbrella term psi is used right now. Because you really can't distinguish those things. And so we're still at the state of the, you know, gathering evidence. I mean, parapsychology is still for all the time it's been around, it's still kind of in its infancy. Sure. But it's but it's developing rapidly. We're going back to this kid, this autistic kid. I'm wondering though, this woman the, the scientist involved, supposedly, I don't know if she's a scientist or not, the psychologist, mm-hmm. I've never heard of her for, in any of the parapsychology journals or anything. It was notable to me that she's not a parapsychologist. Right. Um, so I don't know how familiar she is with the protocols that have developed over the years. I assume she's researched them a bit. If she's gonna, you're going to study telepathy. And, and, and see, right there, the use of the word telepathy, Mm-hmm. Raise some flags for you. Alarm bells at my mind. What would be the proper oh, we term? Don't call it, we don't call it telepathy anymore. You know. What do you call it? We, which makes me, which makes me wonder. It's just kids exhibiting some kind of a psychic ability or some facility for psi, which makes me kind of wonder about her qualifications too. And I'm thinking that somebody else should investigate it. There sure. have been a lot of skeptics coming out. You know, magicians particularly were skeptics in the world. If they can duplicate anything, therefore it's fake. Right. Which is the same logic as saying, if I can make a fake hamburger out of rubber, that proves that hamburgers don't exist. Exactly. I like that analogy. <laughs> yeah, the ability to duplicate something, what does that prove? Um, yes, you could pick a card. We'll go back to the analogy of a card tree. You pick a card from a deck of cards. I tell you what it is. Now, there are innumerable ways you could do that using card tricks. But what if you were really doing it? It would look the same. It would look exactly the same. And there, w- and there would be no way be to other. tell whether it was a card trick or pr- nope. real power. But even if... Even if... Um, the magician is totally fooled by something. Or the arch skeptic, or what protocol is pseudo skeptic, will assume nonetheless that it must be a trick. Exactly. Um, and that's uh, one of the problems we have with the skeptics movement today, 
is that, well, and I, this does not apply to all skeptics. It applies to a, the ones Marcello Trizzi, sociologist. Sure. Probably the, one of the best authorities on the subject I ever knew. Psychos. Uh, referred to as pseudo-skepticism. Yeah. They have an a priori belief that this does not exist, and therefore, any proof it must be incorrect. Interestingly no, enough, no he he is credited uh, as as uh, coining the phrase "an extraordinary claim requires extraordinary proof." Actually, Sagan is. But I, it goes back even further. Well, I believe. Sagan popularized it. But I think he gets the in ter in terms of uh, I looked him up on uh, on Wikipedia, and he gets the yeah he uh, just don't, he seemed to agree with it. And that was the thing I used to argue with him all the time about. No, oh, you knew. I would just say well, Yeah, well, I knew nice. Marcello quite well. Cool. But um, I asked him why. What other scientific claims or theories have been subjected to what's called extraordinary proof? I agree. I mean, it's been accepted even by skeptics nowadays, by some arch skeptics, that the evidence for Psy has now met the standard of normal scientific proof. In other words, by normal scientific standards, the case for Psy has been made. And for those who doubt that, just type that in on your Google. By normal scientific standards, the case for size we made, you'll see the references I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. And, but they don't. But you get to the Carl Sagan thing and the Trusey thing. But because the claim is extraordinary, it requires extraordinary proof. Now the question is, what is an extraordinary claim? Exactly. What now, claim is the, not extraordinary? <laughs> well, in the 1700s. People remember from school the famous scientist of Lavoisier. Mm -hmm. He famously stated back then that there was no such thing as meteors. And his reason was rocks don't fall from the sky. <laughs> yeah. Or he was actually talking about meteorites. They would find them. People would, and the theory was that these things had fallen from the sky and his scientific quote-unquote answer to that was no rocks don't fall from the sky therefore there are no meteors from outer space right it's similar to the a priori thinking which in, in the modern case goes to esp does not exist and i suspect i've often suspected this that there's another reason for it we're getting back to the whole atheism issue uh-huh what are the ramifications for the arch skeptics who are generally atheists, if Psy is proven to exist. Right. And I think they see that as almost a chink in the armor of their atheism, although I don't understand that, why that would be. Right. It's a perfectly normal process. Why would that have anything to do with that belief? But the scary thing about Psy, or we can call it telepathy for now, just in normal terms, is that mind to mind communication, which is one form of it. While it may not be proven by extraordinary proof now, it certainly will exist one day. Right. The ramifications of that are certainly something we should be thinking about. We saw the beginnings of it with Google Glass, for example. 
Well, with just you know, these glasses pointed on you, you're connected to the Internet. We've seen experiments being done where fighter pilots are hooked up to electrodes, and just by thinking certain thoughts, they could cause a bomb site to move on a computer yeah. screen. And they've used the Internet to send thoughts across the planet. So we have done uh, electronic-aided telepathy. It is a thing. Yes. Already. So it seems to me extremely likely that sometime down the road... Everybody will have this ability to serve. People are going to have, be able to have implants. It's a little chip put in your brain. Now, well, think about all the privacy issues and everything else. Oh, well, yeah. They, people are already having chips put in their hands so they can open doors easily, more easily at their companies. Uh, but but um, even without needing the chip in their brain, they could wear something that would connect to uh, the electric electronic activity in their minds to to do the same well, sure. kind of thing well that's what i'm saying that's like the the google google glass thing right where you're on the internet but you're seeing it or you know why not on the inside of contact lenses right but once it's permanently inside the body now well now it's part of you yeah you essentially become a uh, a bioelectron a bioelectronic being or whatever yep which the other day, I gave myself a good nightmare about that, <laughs> thinking about, okay, now what happens when the hackers turn up? Right. I mean, right now, they can make so-called zombie computers by taking people's computers over, then mm -hmm. using them all to do a denial-of-service attack on a, a specific target. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens if they could hack into whatever chips or something that are in human minds. Maybe I'm just sounding crazy now. No, actually, you sound like you'd, you'd, uh, you'd be very good at writing a, a blockbuster uh, thriller film. <laughs> That's possible, doesn't it? Yeah, you get technology zombies. That'd be great. I mean, zombies are all the rage now, but I don't think we've seen a techno zombie yet. No. Yeah, I might start off by making funny phone calls to people. Right. <laughs> like a denial of service attack. Everybody in the world starts calling this one phone number. Exactly. And drives the person, you know. <laughs> but then what can you do with it? I, uh, yeah, I don't know. So in in terms of, um, because you you seem very, very up on the the uh, history of Thai and, uh, and you knew Truzy, which I didn't realize. Um, what has been shown as evidence that you know of, of uh, in Psy? Like, well, like, it, it, well, the question goes to evidence is such a uh, subject to so much interpretation, what the sure. word evidence means. Classically, evidence is defined as any fact set forth in favor of or opposed to a certain proposition is evidence. Evidence could be anecdotal. Somebody told me this. Evidence can be hearsay at a court of law. Yeah. And it's given hearsay evidence, given much less weight, for example, than other types of evidence. People nowadays you know, say, well, there's no evidence for Psy. They're using, they're conflating the word evidence with the word proof. Right. Sure, there's a lot of evidence. All kinds. Yeah. There's statistical evidence, which is much stronger than anecdotal evidence, for example. If you look at the writings of um, Dean Radin, for example, in his book, which I always recommend to people, The Conscious Universe where he does a meta-analysis of all ESP studies going back to about 1900. And he looked at all the results. He combined them all together as if they were one giant test. Like you take all the card-guessing experiments going back 110 years and take all the results. 
and then do a statistical analysis of those. And it does come out above chance. That is deemed, that is a type of evidence. Mm -hmm. Another interesting kind of evidence, or to me, is, is the classic sheep-goat effect. I don't know People that say, one. What's the sheep-goat effect? Has there ever been a replicable study inside? That's the problem. These experiments can't be repeated. Well, there are a couple reasons why psi experiments are difficult to replicate. Is because it, it's kind of like a unique ability. If psi exists, who's to say it exists equally in everyone? Right. Right? And, of course, you have all of... You run into problems of experimenter bias and everything like that. But the sheep-goat effect was... The term was coined by Gertrude Schmeidler, who was in charge of Dream Research Laboratory in New York in the 1940s, where she did an interesting analysis of ESP tests and found that... Well, she wasn't using standard card-guessing experiments, but I'll use that for an example. In a standard card-guessing experiment with Rhine cards, by chance you should be expected to get 20% right. Because there are five designs. So totally by chance, out of 25 cards, you're likely to get five of them correct just by guessing. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's just simple math. But she found the people who had these subjects would be interviewed beforehand, before they were given the test, as to what, whether or not they believed in the possibility of Psy. Those who believed in the possibility of Psy scored significantly better than those who did not believe in it at all. In other words, those who did not believe in it consistently scored below chance. And that's a replicable experiment that's held up. Now, why is that? That's great. If you don't believe in Psy and consistently perform below chance, what does that, what does that indicate? That you must know something about yeah. the designs to be wrong every time. Huh. I like that. I mean, it, it, it also, I mean, it makes me what I reflect on. I'm sorry. Yeah. What I reflect on automatically is how, generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, speaking, people who are more resistant and disbelieving about hypnosis aren't yes. as easily hypnotized or involved in it. And although I have had somebody who's totally said, um, I, I know you, I have a, you'll have a hard time hypnotizing me and so on and so on. And who, I mean, I've had a few people who were like that, who were extremely easy and went right into some deep yeah, hypnosis. But, so, but yeah. generally speaking, you know, it, if you're going to say that, that you don't but it all, in presumes, it. it all presumes that the person knows they're being hypnotized. Right. Almost everyone, for example, has experienced the phenomenon. But also, just Highway hypnosis is a good example. Yeah, highway hypnosis is an example I use all the time. Um, you could drive, drive for hours and not remember anything you, where you were. Exactly. It was like you, that was a, that's a state of trance. Totally, yeah, totally Focus state of trance. One thing. Or, that's all hypnosis is, in a sense, is directed focus. Exactly. Directed focus. Um, by the same token, audience members in in a mentalism show, uh, you'll get more amazing hits that you'd even plan on with people who are completely with you. And, um, oh, I experience and that all the time. strongly believe in, in, in mind reading 
you will have uh -huh. stronger mind reading. Exactly. Oh, sometimes my regular show has gone totally off the rails because I've had such good people in the audience. Right, that you're connecting. And you're like, wow, I'm just, we I'll can do anything. I stay with them. And it goes. Other times, that's not the case. I've had nights where um, there was such a good connection going on that I started having people read the thoughts of other people in the audience, and uh -huh. they were repeatedly f effective. And that was a great. I mean, that was a great night for everybody, and it blew my mind. Mm -hmm. So I, I see well, these things happening in, in the real in the real world. Well, sure. And it seems that large groups of people, you're going to be able to demonstrate phenomena a lot easier than with any given individual. Yeah, wisdom in numbers. Yeah. that Which is why, like in remote viewing tests, for example, you'll have a target, which is selected at random, and theoretically no one knows what the target is. And if somebody does know what the target is, they are not involved in any other part of the experiment. You have right. the person describing. Then you have a panel of judges. Who determines what parts of the description were accurate, what parts weren't accurate. But they found that if you have several subjects, say you have two dozen subjects focusing on something, okay? Mm -hmm. And they all give their descriptions. The judges look at them, and instead of just trying to determine which one was closest, instead they look for common features that the majority of the subjects picked up on. Okay. Yeah. They find you get a higher percentage of success, but that uh -huh. feature will be there. But again, going back to what is, what is the evidence improved? Well, I always cite the sheep goat effect, and there have been attempts. I mean, there have been attempts to refute the sheep goat effect, but the attempts are very weak. They go, "Well, that goes to experimenter bias." I said, "No. What difference would that make if the individual is already determined to not believe or believe?" What difference does it make if the experimenter believes you? Let's take. Let's assume the experimenter does not believe in psi. It's a complete skeptic. Was just doing the test. Right. Okay. Does that have an effect on the outcome? If the answer is yes, you've essentially proven a variation of the sheep goat effect. Hmm. Yeah. Why should that have any effect at all? I mean, it does in interpreting results. And in creating, you know, the so-called file draw problem where a lot of experimenters will just disregard negative tests and only focus on the positive ones, which is, of course, wrong. And that's something that Dean Radin tried to overcome with his meta-analysis by studying all the tests going all the way back. He has a way of compensating for any potential file draw problem. There's an estimate of how many test might have been ignored, and that's factored into his equations and stuff. Of course, his results are being attacked. But the interesting thing is that even skeptics today, arch skeptic Ray Hyman from Oregon, who's been at the forefront of the skeptical movement forever, right. he's, he's very old, acknowledged um, Jessica Utz was a parapsychologist, was working on the, one of the U.S. government remote viewing programs. Mm-hmm. And he was analyzing her protocols, and he finally came to the conclusion. He was advising her also on how to eliminate possibilities of fraud, statistical errors, right. etc. But he finally got to the point where he acknowledged in writing that there were no flaws in her protocol that he could detect. Right. There was nothing wrong with her math, and that the protocol was solid. And he 
conceded that there was still what he, he just referred to it as an anomaly in her results that couldn't be accounted for. Right. You know, they, they did not coincide with chance. But art skeptic that he is, he jumped from that to his a priori belief that it doesn't exist, since he assumes the site doesn't exist, therefore the explanation must be that there's something wrong with the statistical method. Right. See, now you see skeptics attacking the, the actual mathematics now. Yeah, Whereas because they're so be, solid in their belief that everything else has to be wrong if if they show proof. Yes. No, the feeling is it's more likely there's an error in the statistics than it is likely that Psi exists. That gets back to this extraordinary claim thing and also the, the Occam's razor idea that they'll keep bringing up. Right. You know, the simplest answer is the best one. Right. And yet they haven't shown where. And, and see, that's where Truzy comes back into the picture. I'm like Truzy agnostic when it comes to to psychic claims. All right? Mm -hmm. So I have no burden of proof. I think the proof that exists now, the evidence exists now, is enough to warrant further study. Because there are things going on that we cannot explain. I don't know that they are psi. I'll get right. into the Mars effect in a minute, because that kind yeah. of ties into that. And star baby. But, um, yeah, because that kind of ties directly into that idea. But I don't have any burden of proof now, because if I simply say, the tr and that's a true skeptical approach. A true skeptic has no burden of proof. Because right. he's agnostic towards the issue. He's open to anything. So-called pseudo-skeptic, though. This was a difference that, that Truzy right. was getting this is, at. This is generally an atheist who's trying to support his beliefs. Exactly. So he does. If a pseudo-skeptic says, for example, Psy does not exist. Right. Or there is no evidence for Psy. They have just made... Even though it's kind of a negative statement, there is no uh, psi. Psi does not exist. Right. They've nonetheless made an affirmative statement. And that carries a burden of proof. Right. Of course, they will respond to that. I mean, I've been in these arguments so many times by saying, well, that's like me saying, uh, I can't prove Santa Claus doesn't exist. And I go, absolutely right, you can't. <laughs> but it's not, not the same thing. Right. Because there's evidence for Psy and no evidence for Santa Claus. <laughs> there's a difference. However, <laughs> um, the tooth fairy is another story. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get to the Mars effect that I mentioned. That was one of the first fiascos that came about in uh, the early days of Psychops. Actually, the Mars effect was discovered before Psychops. That was a committee for scientific investigation of the paranormal. Mm hmm which um, later became the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, which was later pretty much incorporated by the James Randi Foundation. Right. But in the beginning, Randi wasn't even involved yet. It was, I think Paul Klass started it along with Dennis Rollins. I know Marcello Truzzi was there in the beginning. He was mm -hmm. there. But it was in the mid-'70s, or about 1976 or so, that a French astronomer named Michel Gauquelin, um, made an interesting discovery. It was a pretty simple discovery. He found that athletes who were born with Mars in a certain position in their zodiac, okay, that athletes, no, 
it was that more athletes were born with Mars in a certain position of their zodiac than non-athletes. Right. Okay, that was it. That was his study. He made no conclusions as to why that might be the case. So essentially, more, a- more athletes were born at a certain time of year. Well, that's what comes up later. Okay. Yeah, because that's when Mars would be in a certain thing. But the, the people in the precursors to Psychop, and later it became Psychop, and they did the investigation, assumed that this was an endorsement of astrology, which was hardly the case. It was just an observation. I wonder, why is this, why is this true? Right. Which is the question. So they proceeded to try to replicate Dugokalin's ex- experiments. Uh, now it's a, this is now about the time when Cyclops is actually formed, mm-hmm. okay? Because the Mars effect came before it was formed, but then it was forming. When they were finally together, they did this experiment. They tried to replicate it, and much to their surprise, their own research confirmed it. <laughs> but it was in fact true. Yeah, athletes tended to have Mars in a certain part of their zodiac, whereas non-athletes didn't. This they decided could not be true. Because they know ahead of time that this is astrology and astrology is pseudoscience. Of course, they're making the assumption this is astrology, which really isn't. It's just an observation. Well, this brought a lot of... What happened next is they... And this is where the big uh, dispute came. Is Dennis Rollins quit Psychops when he decided that... See, they went ahead, Psychops, and changed their, their statistics, changed their research or according to Rollins, falsified their research. It came out with a finding proving that the Mars effect was not true. But in fact, the figures were all tinkered with. Right. There was never a mention that they'd actually confirmed it. So this caused a big rift. Later, um, Dennis Rollins wrote a lengthy article about it that appeared in Fate magazine. Fate magazine, you know, it used to be a, you know, just a pop magazine about paranormal experiences and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But it also was kind of an organ for the Society of Psychical Research. And occasionally there would be serious articles in there. Well, anyway, he published an article called Star Baby, which is a very right. lengthy, or lengthy article. And it, it's spelled with a small S, capital T, A-R-B-A-B-Y. It was a takeoff on the old Uncle Remus Tar Baby. Yeah. Fable. Well, that, there's a lost story. Yeah. Which you don't hear anymore because, you know, they don't tell Uncle Remus stories anymore for obvious reasons. Right. But but the moral of the story was there. Zippity doo dah. And uh, you know, you put enough bad stuff it's gonna stick to the it's gonna stick like the tar, you know? Right. But um, you know, say the lie often enough, people accept it's true. Um Anyway, he wrote this lengthy article. You can find the whole thing online. Just Google Dennis Rollins and Star Baby. Star Baby, right. And you'll find this very lengthy article about what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, Psychops did, did write. I think Paul Klass wrote a rebuttal to Rollins. But the rebuttal was never published. Those who saw it attacked it as well, but there's no way of knowing right now what was in his rebuttal. I don't know. It may have been published elsewhere. But the fact was that that was an example of 
preconceived beliefs affecting the outcome of something. And what was really fascinating about it is in the end, it was determined why this is true, that athletes tend to be born with Mars. In a particular place. It had nothing to do with astrology. It had nothing to do with Psi. It had to do with the simple fact, as you said earlier, it showed that they were born at a certain time of the year. And the time of the year you're born in dictates when you will start school. Right. And so you will they, first will be, they will be stronger than the other kids generally. And how old you will be relative to your classmates. Right. They're a freshman football team, for example. Right. Who's going to be bigger? Who's going to be stronger? Age, a one-year age difference is big at that stage in life. Yeah. So it was a mundane explanation. But Tychops was not interested in finding an explanation. They were more interested in debunking the finding because they presumed that it was proving something they didn't believe in. Right. Which to me, you know... Even Carl Sagan, who was like a fellow of Psychop, did acknowledge on occasion that pseudoskeptics would go too far. A lot of noted, though, Dr. Susan Blackmore from England started out as a um, believer. She's a parapsychologist. She, she started out as a believer, and she became a skeptic over the years. I, I met her in the late 70s when I was on a panel discussion at Fairleigh Dickinson University mm-hmm. for the parapsychology association's annual convention and the panel was about how mentalists could assist parapsychologists in designing fraud proof test protocols and it was an interesting panel i was on it uh tony raven was on it who i know you know most most people wouldn't know him um randy was on it okay randy was on that panel with me was this in his as days I recall, of we, being a mentalist, or was he an escape? No, he was just—he was already. No, he was already starting his um, skeptical crusade. Okay. Because this was after Geller, and that's when right. Randy re- made himself as the arch skeptic. Yep. Before that, he was the magician on Wonderama in New York, the kids show that was on every Sunday. <laughs> right. Um, but then he was reborn as the art skeptic when Yuri Geller came here. And that's when he got famous. Yeah. He never really got particularly famous as a, a magician. Right. That all sort of came later, but I, I don't know that he ever did too much as far as, uh, if it hadn't have been for Yuri Geller, nobody would have heard of him. He was on Happy Days. That yeah. That was after Geller too, or about the same time. Right. Max Maven was on one of those shows too, I think. Was he on Happy Days? I don't know. He was on Mork and Mindy. He was on Mork and Mindy. Uh, Max Maven. He played a driving instructor. Really? Huh. Okay. As Max Maven. Which was kind of frightening. People haven't heard of Max Maven. He's uh, you've probably look, seen him on television. Go look He's an that up. Yeah. I'm actually going to write that in right guy, now. Yeah, picture this guy as your driving instructor. And you'll go, oh my God. <laughs> he looks like a cross between Dracula and who knows what. But where was I? Yeah, the panel discussion that we did inside Dr. Blackmore. Right. And she slowly became a skeptic. But even to this day, she's still a, a member of the Parapsychology Association. It's interesting. I posted on a forum some articles from the PA website. 
which are actually very neutral articles, one on the sheep goat effect, one which was actually written by a skeptic in Italy. And yeah. some of the pseudo-skeptics that populate that forum came on and said, well, that's just all word salad. That's just all gobbledygook. I said, wait a minute, that was written by skeptics. You know, just the assumption that we're talking about the Parapsychology Association. Oh, that's pseudoscience. I, so I don't have to read what they wrote because it, it's not true. And that's what you'll find with a lot of of skeptics today, the ones without scientific backgrounds. In other words, I would not include Ray Hyman. He knows what the research is, and that's why you've gotten concessions from him. Right. But the average pseudo-skeptic knows nothing at all about parapsychology. The average magician skeptic thinks that he's qualified to evaluate psychic phenomena because he learned to do a couple card tricks. Right. It has no background whatsoever. So it's, even, it's meaningless to even discuss the issue with those people. They'll say, oh, that's just all this ridiculous. How can anybody believe anything like that? And then, of course, you have the, the slack-jawed believers who try to, who jump into these arguments occasionally. You know, they believe everything. And they, they drive me just as crazy. Because I'm going, please, don't defend me. They would come <laughs> on defending my position, but they were so slack-jawed and obviously deluded that I don't want them on my side, you know? <laughs> trying Right. Maintain a neutral point of view. I mean, that's my position. It's worthy of further research. That's it. Mystery of the week. So we were talking about that experiment that's been in the papers lately with the autistic kid. Yeah. Um, well, I don't even know if I could call it an experiment. It's just a, it's a mother of a, with an autistic child who's high functioning, and uh, and she's reported that her son her son has some telepathic abilities and then they show a psychologist i think is what she calls herself who's studying yeah. the telepathic uh ability of autistic people um testing the child and showing that the child guesses three of five playing cards that the mother um holds up and and i yeah. i had the th the same first thought uh that i'm sure many people did um from our world which is that somehow the mother, maybe the, the mother and the child are not consciously aware of this, but it's very possible that they're cueing each other somehow uh, as to what number it, it is being be, thought um, of. It's hard to tell because it, from what I read about it, there's been no st actual study done on the kid. Right. We're talking about a very limited run that, that was videotaped, um, you know, three out of five. That sounds kind of small. What was really funny to me is... Um, they used playing cards to represent the numbers. However, mm -hmm. they used a random number generating... My, my speech is off today. They used a random number generating computer program to, to give the order of the numbers that should be used instead of just shuffling the deck. As though the random yes. number generator was going to be more random than shuffling. It probably would be, if you think about it. That would be... That's valid. A deck just, of cards can be shuffled several times and still maintain... A, some cards will still maintain relative order to other ones. Right, but there is... Um, the, the permutations there... The order that gets created is... possibly never going to be recreated unless it's consciously done. 
Oh, no, of course not. It didn't seem it would make any difference. But nowadays, random number generators are used almost exclusively in, in parapsychology rather than in the old days when they used Zener cards, you know. Right. And even the later Zener experiments didn't use the cards. They used a random generator. Yeah. For those not familiar, these are your classic so-called ESP cards, the cards with the circle cross through every line, the square and the star, five symbols, each repeated five times for a 25-card pack. And one of the problems with that, you know, the sender would look at one if you were testing for telepathy. The receiver would guess. And there are all kinds of problems coming up right there already. In early experiments, they would give the receiver feedback receiver would say cross and he would be told if he was right or wrong right that alone skews the results given that there's only 25 cards to a run that that changes the odds if you know what one was already dealt then you know there's only four more of those left in the pack if you came up twice there's only three and obviously if it came up five times you know there are no more of those so so nowadays you'll see a lot of well not nowadays but you find them on the internet, so-called ESP testers, where it's randomly generated. It's not a 25-card pack. It's just a random selection of one of the five designs. So theoretically, you could have 15 stars or 100 stars, unlimited number of each symbol. But they would still do runs of like 100. But slowly, those kind of tests all change to random generators. That that similar problem you see with the playing cards or shuffling them. Yeah. So you have to eliminate feedback is one of the first things they discovered, which obviously hasn't been done in this case. The, the case we're talking about also reminded me a little bit of the case of Clever Hans, the so-called telepathic horse in the 19th century, <laughs> who was able to obey commands or add up, um, you know, you'd say, Clever Hans, what is the total of three plus five? And then the horse would, you know... Stomp, 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 yeah. Yeah, which was all well and good, but um, it didn't work when the horse's owner wasn't present. Right. Or when the horse could not see the owner. In other words, the owner could give the, could say the word, but if the horse couldn't see the owner, it didn't work. So it seems to me that the likely explanation there was when the horse would be asked a question, like that, he would just start tapping his foot and would stop when he perceived some subconscious cue from the from the owner. Right, like you're there. He knew what the total was. Exactly, which you, so, can, you can do this with yourself with a pendulum. <laughs> exactly. Just focus on it and make it move whichever way you want. Right, or tap out a number. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's all fascinating. Um... So I, I got a little sidetracked there because I had to look up whether it was Max and Maven in Morgan Mindy, and it was. As, of course as, it was. Uh, as, as Devlin was his character's name. What was the name of the character? Devlin. S. Devlin. In the episode yeah. Drive, she said. Yeah, they had to get the word devil in for devil in there because that's what he looks like. Yeah, he does. Uh, although, sadly, uh, there's no photo. <laughs> that's what I was looking for. Just picture Max Maven as you know him getting into the car next Yeah, to exactly. 
he looks pretty much the same. He was a lot younger then, but the makeup was still the same. Right. But uh, I know very few mentalists. Nowadays in mentalism, where mentalism is getting really confused these days, mm-hmm. is that so many magicians are calling themselves mentalists. And just doing a magic show. And they're not. Yeah. They're doing magic tricks, calling them mind reading and stuff like that. And, and, and they put mentalists on their business card, advertise themselves as magicians, mentalists, and they know nothing about mentalism, really. Yeah. They just Not, do nothing some sort parapsychology. of thought-based so, trick yeah, look, in their could, show. Yeah, I could read minds. And then they'll tell you it's all a trick. Whereas I can tell you, any pro-mentalist that I know can tell you all kinds of things that go on in a, in a mentalism show. We were referring to it before. Yeah. That have nothing to do with psychological manipulation or a lot of the other tools we use that just happen. Yeah, we've all had the those experiences. Are... Uh, well, it's just coincidence. I used to respond to that with one of my favorite sayings. Coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put that on the the beginning of this. Coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. That's wonderful. Yep. Actually, that kind of ties more into synchronicity. You know, the uh, Jung's idea, mm-hmm. uh, meaningful, meaningful coincidence. Carl Jung's idea, synchronicity, which is sometimes used as a synonym for coincidence, but, but it's, it's a really like a thing. meaningful coincidence. Coincidence that has great meaning to you. I keep a I keep a little notebook of those things. They happen all the time. Yeah, I do too. Uh, like we're talking about Michel Gorkelin right now, this French astronomer. Mm-hmm. Now, what if tomorrow you just opened a newspaper or a book at random, and there's his name with a discussion about him? You go, wow. Yeah. Of course, the skeptics would say, well. That, that's because it, it had meaning to you. There's coincidences happen all the time, but most of them, most events don't bear any relation to anyone else, and so you don't draw the connection. Well, I think we do tune ourselves into what we're looking for, or what yeah. what what we need as well at times. So I don't. Well, uh, Robert Anton Wilson, interesting experiment on those lines. The, the you, quarter. We'll see what you're looking for. Yeah, the quarter. That's a great. You're going to find a quarter. To... For those okay. who don't know, just tell yourself. Uh, sometime in the next two days I'm going to find a quarter and then forget about it and you will start to find quarters. It just happens. That's right. It's great. Yep. So, you know, if you ever need a quarter. Exactly. But why That's stop at a quarter? I want a $100 bill. Find a 20 or 100 yeah. <laughs> well, that happens, you know. But it's and when I, you, and I, don't, I don't think this is the law of attraction, which is a popular... Uh, this is different. Well, well, that's kind of vocation. The law of attraction. That that reminds me of the old uh, advertisements you'd see in the back of Popular Mechanics. And, well, you wouldn't expect to see it, you know. Yeah. Join the Rosicrucians. Oh, you'd see it in comic books and stuff. Uh huh. Like what? Learn the secrets of the law of attraction. <laughs> exactly. Or what was the group that taught you how to have out of body experiences? You could join them. I wasn't aware there was a group. My aunt gave oh, me yeah. a book on, on out-of-body experiences when I was a kid. The obese. Yep. Well, that's one of the things, going back to Gertrude Schmeidler, that she was kind of studying. 
when they were doing the first remote viewing test were really under this paradigm of out-of-body experiences where you'd have a subject and put him in the so-called Gansfeld state, mm-hmm. the clear field state where your body's basically suspended in a saltwater tank. You've got um, white goggles on and you're wearing headphones, white goggles painted white. In other words, you can't see anything through them. You just see white light. Right. And um, headphones on that are just playing white noise into your ears, which is basically the hissing sound you get on the radio when you're turning between stations. Yep. Like that. Um, And in that state, it's the way they were. If you stay in that state for too long, you can go crazy, actually. But it was believed that that would open you up more to um, receiving thoughts or whatever. And in the same room, there would be a shelf high on the wall. And there would be a photograph or a drawing of some kind on this shelf facing upwards. Correct. Yeah. This was to test the old idea that people had reported, like forever, people who have had operations and suddenly feel that they've left their body and they're looking down at the operating table seeing themselves being operated on. Yeah. The purpose of her test would see if the person could literally imagine themselves floating out of their body to the top of the room and they're looking down to see what the picture is. And if they could describe the picture, that would be a hit, which is another way of looking at uh, remote viewing tests as yeah. opposed to either clairvoyance or SP. Um, of course, that that really did that that paradigm didn't last too long. But uh, that's a strange any test. Paradigm I mean, like why, that, why would you need the why would you need the white noise? I guess so you can't hear anything. It's whatever it does to the mind or, or whatever, it's just the white noise, the white light total suspension of the body it's like total sensory deprivation yeah and the white noise also prevents you like from hearing your own heart beating yeah and things like that because even in a totally soundproof room if you're sitting there you will hear two noises you know your heartbeat you'll hear your your nervous system and so you're basically eliminating all the senses yep in the hopes that something else could get through Again, they, they, all kinds of approaches have been tried. I don't know that one is any more valid than any other until we know exactly what the phenomena is. But still, that's where Psy is lacking in, in proof. I think the proof is there that something's going on, and we don't know what it is, but too many people are trying to come up with a theory for it before we've actually proven the phenomena. What, you, know um, what I mean? uh, for, you You've definitely studied this more in depth than most people I've talked to. Uh, and and uh, have a great memory for it, but outside of the psi research, what have you experienced personally that has gone beyond um, your ability oh, to explain? As perform- mostly as a performer, just tuning right into somebody and knowing everything about them. Yeah, well, I mean, outside of that, outside of that, like serendipitous. Say unconscious cold reading. Oh yeah, all right. That's that's what told me uh, what movie you saw last night. But it, it, those things happen a lot. And other people say, well, it's just coincidence. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, it happens often enough that, to me, it's significant. Yeah, I agree. You Any were, proof uh, will be You written. were telling me one time we chatted about um, the Bermuda Triangle. Oh, okay. That had nothing to do with the Bermuda Triangle. That had to do with Bermuda. Okay. And Bermuda Triangle, yeah, it's one of the, it's like the Devil's Triangle off um, Japan, which has similar incidents to the Bermuda Triangle, but they all seem to be more or less related to the fact that those are the two of the heaviest shipping lanes 
in the world. Right. So obviously you're going to have more accidents and problems there. But the Bermuda incident you're talking about really goes to synchronicity. Well, I was working for Holland America Cruises. This was in 1973. Uh, we were on the Rotterdam, which was the flagship for Holland America then. And we did weekly cruises out of New York to Bermuda and Nassau. When we got to Bermuda, the ship was too big to dock there, so we had to take a boat to go ashore. And while we were at sea, headed for Bermuda, this was in the days before the internet and before cell phones, you really didn't get any news of the outside world. Every morning they would slip a mimeograph sheet under your door from what they'd picked up on the radio and you know what the weather was going to be, who won the ball games the night before, some brief things on world news. Mm-hmm. But not, not the same thing as having a newspaper available. So typically when we got to Bermuda, first thing we'd do, those of us who cared about what was going on in the world, was buy a newspaper. Right. On this one time when I was there, bought my newspaper... I was sitting down having coffee or something, reading it. And it was a stunning story on the front page. It was about a car accident that had happened the night before involving one of those little motorcycles that were so popular in Bermuda. I don't know if they still are, but they were, you know, like motor scooters that all the tourists would rent. Sure. And, you know, you scoot all around the island with them. They're all over Asia. But a lot, a lot of the locals used them, too. They'd yeah. ride around on their motor scooters. Well, it turned out that at a certain intersection just outside Hamilton, which was the capital, there was an accident involving a taxi cab and one of these motor scooters. And unfortunately, the driver of the motor scooter was killed. He was hit by the taxi cab. Well, in and of itself, you know, a tragedy. Things like that happen every day until mm-hmm. you read on in the story. It turns out that exactly a year before to the day, the same taxi driver driving the same cab with the same passenger was involved in an accident with a motor scooter at the same intersection in which the driver was also killed. Wow. And the driver of that motor scooter was the twin brother of the one that had been killed the <laughs> night before. Wow. This was later written up um, in a book. I think it was called Incredible Coincidence. I'm not certain of the title. Right. But it was a story that wasn't kept secret, that it actually happened. Yeah, now there are coincidences, and there are coincidences, but uh, to me... <laughs> that goes beyond it's, our it, ability to fathom lots of... I mean, same taxi, same passenger, same... Twin t- brother twin of brother the of, victim. I mean, well, I wonder... Wow. I wonder what? how much of a deja vu experience that must have been for the taxi driver. Well, he probably went nuts. Yeah. <laughs> I'd go nuts. I Actually, the mundane example was it was um, an intentional act. He had it in for both of them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and that, he just that happened to pick up that passenger spot. at that time every day. Yeah, that was his regular passenger, and he knew that that kid was driving that intersection every day, too, at a certain time, so he was going to get the twin brother, too, and make a big story up. I'm sure pseudo-skeptic would say that's more probable. Of course, I don't think Nonetheless, it's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating mystery. I like it. Yeah, it's one of those things. It has no scientific value whatsoever. It's just one of those, wow. I mean, you can find tons of stories like that. Yeah. 
But again, it goes back to what I said before. Coincidence being God's way of staying anonymous. Maybe there's a message in there for us. Don't drive a motor scooter. I don't know. Avoid that <laughs> intersection. Avoid this particular intersection in Bermuda. That's if you have to go somewhere, take a cab. Don't take a motor scooter. Yeah. Definitely. But that's fascinating stuff. I'm also a big fan, though, of Robert Anton Wilson. We mentioned him with the quarter thing. Yeah, I, I need to study him more. I have, I've um, come across the quarter thing before. I've read just a little bit, but I would like to get more into him. Well, he gets in, his writing is very relevant because he gets in, into the whole thing about so-called reality tunnels, that everything that we perceive in the world around us, around us is subject to the filters of our own senses. In other right. words, if we look at a tree, for example, we are not actually seeing that tree. What is happening is just like the lens of a camera. The image of that tree hits the lens on our eye, which inverts it, turns it upside down, projects it to the back of the eye, then it goes through the optic nerve into the brain, and the brain reconstructs it and reorients it. Right. So what you're actually seeing is your brain's reconstruction of what came into your eye, if that makes any sense. Right. Um, take sounds. We all know that dogs can hear sounds outside of the range of human hearing. That's just a limitation on our senses. But it certainly doesn't, the fact that we can't hear something doesn't mean it's not there. Right. We have evidence of the fact that dog can hear it. It's also, if we are bombarded, you know, Every minute of every day, we're bombarded with sensory input. If we didn't have filters, we'd literally go crazy. Yeah. If everything had equal access to your mind, how would you be able to focus on anything? You right. have to block things out. And our senses do block things out. The problem is, this is where you get into the whole area that Leon Festinger wrote about, the area of cognitive dissonance. When we see something that does not conform to our predetermined beliefs, our personal reality tunnel, very often we simply don't see it. It's simply filtered out. Right. Because it does not correspond with our worldview and our view of reality. Which raises an interesting thing I've thought about. It's, a skeptical often say something like, I'll believe it when I see it. We've all heard that saying, right? Sure. But... Might it be more accurate to say, in some cases, well, you can't see it. You cannot see it unless you believe it. Yes, I think it's quite often accurate that people don't see things because they don't believe in them. And that's, again, where the cognitive dissonance comes in, where you're struck with the fact that it's so totally contrary to your reality view. Most people will not change their mind or, or change their, uh, you know, their, their original belief. They will instead either not see that or ignore that or rationalize it so it conforms with their reality view. Yeah. That's what you see in a lot of the experimenter bias and things like that. That's basically what it means by cognitive dissonance. You're, you're aware of something that's contrary to what you believe. And so what does the brain do? Shuts it, it out. either ignores it or, or somehow validates it by changing what actually happened. I mean, his original experiment involved people who belonged to a religious cult 
who were convinced that flying saucers were coming and were going to take them away. They were going to go with them, right? And there was a date and everything was going to happen. Just look up cognitive dissonance, uh, Leon Festinger, F-E-S-T-I-N-G-E-R. Uh, you'll, you'll see this experiment and what happened with the group psychologically when the date that they were supposed to arrive didn't come. It was, it was like a cult group with a leader, you know, that told people that this was going to happen and they all believed him. Right. And you see similar examples of this with so-called end of the world predictions. We see those all the time. Remember a couple of years ago, people would predict the end of the world. And when it did not happen, uh, there was supposed to be an end of the world was. event in September. <laughs> so that happened yeah, all the time. But what and when it doesn't happen, they don't renounce the belief. Right. What they do is say, is that, oh, we must have made a mistake in calculating the date. That's the common excuse. It right. was our mistake. We have to recalculate this. In other words, the original belief is so strong that even complete evidence against it is not sufficient. Right. They still believe that the flying saucers were going to come. A couple others in the group, I think, just went, had breakdowns. It's not like they all did the same thing and thought the date was wrong or whatever. Some just had mental breakdowns because they couldn't process that. But that's an interesting thing when you say, you know, that saying, well, you can't see it unless you believe it. Because see, skeptics will have a field day with a statement like that because they'll misinterpret it. Right. They'll say, well, yeah, that means only believers can see this, you know. As if that means there's something wrong with the believers, when in fact there are certain things. You know, go back to Lavoisier, who I talked about earlier. Rocks don't fall from the sky. Exactly. Period. Well, it reminds me also of um, quantum events, the study of quantum events, and the fact that yeah. uh, observing the event affects the event. Yeah. Well, we know that's true on a quantum level. I'm always been a little suspicious of people that try to extrapolate quantum mechanics to other things to day-to-day -day reality it does work on a quantum level that's true yeah let's take the whole schrodinger's cat thing is the cat alive or is he dead right the cat box remember that yeah he's both well he's one or the other it's just that we don't know exactly and you can't know until you look exactly but So I, I don't know. I, Dean Radin, who I mentioned before, the author of Conscious Universe, wrote another book after that where he does get into some discussions of quantum mechanics in terms of um, entanglement theory, which is what you're talking about when you're saying observing something can change it. Mm -hmm. Or more likely objects that have once been in contact, the subatomic particles, etc., that are now separated. Yeah. If, one, if something happens to one of them, the other one will be affected. Yeah. The idea being that they're, and that's a growth simplification, the idea being that they remain entangled. Yeah. Which does go back to this whole Buddhist idea again, that we talked about earlier, this at-one-ment idea. I, I uh, wrote a, a piece once called The Web, not referring to the Internet, but referring to a, um, a hypothetical spider web. Uh, like the whole universe is a spider web. Would it be like a web of, like of connected web. souls or connected uh, energy? Everything. everything is connected to the spider web. Right. But just like a real spider web, the spider who sits in the center of it 
can detect a vibration anywhere on the on the web. Sure. Whatever happens there is also felt over there. Right. And over there. I I I quite like so, this model of yours. I've read it and and I use it in my work as well. It, it's very it's a very easy way. Yeah, it's our, simplified, but it's an easy way to understand that sense of connection. It was called writing the web. It's one of my uh, favorite pieces. But um, I never published that for the public. Uh, I should post it somewhere. You should. Well, do you mind if we include it on this? Sure. Okay, so here's the uh, article I wrote, Writing the Web, subtitled, An Approach to Parapsychology, and a Background Story for Mentalists. ESP, or PSI, as it is now called by parapsychologists, has long been a phenomenon without an identifiable scientific basis. But if we imagine for a moment that our individual minds may actually be part of an infinite universal mind, psychic abilities easily explained. The simple change in our reality view allows us to speculate that psi may actually be nothing more than the ability to decipher signals that are passing through a network or, by analogy, vibrating throughout a web. Imagine a spider web of infinite size whose strands connect everything that exists. You and I, as individuals, are tiny specks attached to the center of the web, but since the web is in in infinite, the center is everywhere. As a result of cultural and bi biological programming, Western man has come to view himself as an entity distinct, distinctly separate from his environment and the rest of humanity. This feeling of separation, coupled with the mechanistic, view of, mechanistic views of modern science, serves to keep most people from allowing themselves to accept the unifying experience as real. They need to. This is funny. We were just talking about this. Here's synchronicity. They need to see it to believe it, when in fact the reverse may be true. It's only when we transcend the illusion of separateness that we begin to appreciate that we are one with the web. A vibration emitting from any particular point travels throughout its infinite expanse. Since everything that exists is in a state of vibration, the web resonates with a symphony produced by the orchestra of all things. That was one of my favorite sentences, by the way. The orchestra a of all things. symphony produced by the orchestra of all things, yeah. The web is real. 
I have the word real is in quotation marks. It is our sense of separation that is the illusion. History is filled with instances of people suddenly experiencing a connection to the web. Many who spoke of their experiences were misunderstood. Frequently, they were persecuted by those who mistook the illusion of separation to be the reality of existence. You may wonder what this has to do with psi or with mentalism for that matter. It's really simple. Operating from the premise that all minds are separate, telepathy, for example, cannot be understood within the confines of accepted physical laws. If all minds, however, are actually connected by a unifying web-like structure, knowing another person's thoughts may simply be a matter of listening to your own. There are a few other aspects of this hypothetical web that should be noted. Since it is an infinite structure, vibrations are not restricted by traditional notions of space and time. A vibration commencing at point A, for example, does not travel to point B. It simply occurs at point B at the same time it occurs at point A. Interestingly, this sort of space-time jumping has actually been observed and acknowledged in the field of quantum physics. Isn't it funny how so much of this we've just been talking about? Exactly, yeah. Exactly. Well, I wrote this article like uh, 20 years ago. You see how it was all embedded in my head. Uh -huh. There's nothing new about the web motif. It's generally accepted in Eastern philosophy and usually rejected in Western thought. Fortunately, we're not faced with an either-or selection. These two apparently opposing viewpoints are entirely reconcilable if one learns to accept that all interpretations of reality are the result of both subconscious programming and the suppression of any sensory input which contradicts the accepted reality model. Reality views are neither true nor false, right nor wrong, black nor white. They're simply the result of subconscious programming and the filtering out of input inconsistent with the chosen reality view. Like everything else that exists, all reality views exist somewhere on the web. Everything on the web also includes ideas. In learning to ride the web, we learn to release ourselves from the constraints of restrictive programming. Only then will we finally be able to delete para from parapsychology, paranormal, and paradox. And we mentalists, of course, will need to find new jobs. <laughs> That's it. That's great. Now, it's kind of interesting. See, we had our little synchronicity there, but it wasn't really a synchronicity because all that's in my head. But look at how much in that article, which I haven't looked at for 20 years, is exactly what we've been talking about. Yeah, even the even down to the quantum uh, yep. sighting. That's great. Yep. But I don't know if it explains anything other than where I'm coming from. Yeah, no, it does give a model of a way to think about connectivity and i think that's a great way to to view the universe don't ask a skeptic about it a very well-known skeptic jamie ian swiss who's a magician who's also a friend of mine lead an art skeptic i have friends on all sides of the spectrum he gave the book that that appeared in rave reviews except that part he said something like ignoring writing the web for the moment, and then he has in parentheses, which is just some kind of gobbledygook that makes absolutely no sense. He actually thought that didn't make any sense at all. Which, to me, is an example... Of exactly what you were talking about of, a moment ago, where if you don't believe it, you it can't see it. Yeah. It makes perfect sense to yep, me. Yep, it does. And yet, to him, it's complete gobbledygook, because he cannot separate himself from the reality view he already has to just even consider another one. He was very good on Craig Ferguson. That's right. He was on Quaker. He's a very good close-up card magician. Yeah. I just wish he would keep doing that. Exactly. Anyway, it's been fun. Yeah, man. 
Somebody got something out of this. Uh, I think this was fantastic. Uh, I'm I'm looking forward to um, putting together the postable version and editing it out and giving you a nice intro. Well, I can't wait. To, I can't wait to hear it to find out what I said. Well, thank you again, and uh, and have a great. Uh, it is now what Sunday night for you. Yep, it's um almost eight thirty Sunday evening. All right, we'll have a nice so I'm gonna watch evening. Seahawks game. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that. I had a great time chatting with the mastermind reader himself, Bob Cassidy. If you want to learn more about Bob Cassidy, you can check him out online at www.bobcassidy.net. Uh, you can also look on YouTube at uh, listings under mastermind reader. Um, lots of great videos of Bob performing his stuff. Um, personally, I enjoyed every second of that. I hope you got something out of it. And uh, if you want to learn more about Bob and if you want to learn more about um, the Mysterious World, you can go to www.mysteriousworldpodcast.com. You can email us, mysteriousworldpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Mysterious World uh, page on facebook it's a it's a group page not a um a page page so you can join in and um share your own experiences of mystery and the unknown uh if you want to know more about me go to stuartpalm.com s-t-u-a-r-t-p-a-l-m.com and uh the next interview should be john stetson so that you have that to look forward to um thanks for listening and uh, have a wonderful November and December. Signing off, this is Stuart Paul.